Well, we learned today that one of Canada's original six astronauts had died. Bjarni Trigveson was born in Iceland, but grew up in Vancouver. He was one of the six Canadian astronauts selected in December 1983, the originals. He flew aboard Space Shuttle Discovery on August 7th, 1997 as a payload specialist. He spent 11 days in space where he successfully operated a Canadian technology he had helped develop, the microgravity vibration isolation mount. From orbit, back then in 1997, he told reporters the space program was key to Canada's economic future. Some of the science that's going to be done on the International Space Station is going to be added to a lot of the work that is currently done in labs on the ground. And it really is imperative that we be a, a significant part of that because otherwise, you know, we're just not going to have the same capability economically in the decades to come. That was Bjarni Trigvison speaking back in 1997 aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. Chris Hadfield said today of Trigvison, lost a good friend today, pioneer astronaut, engineer's engineer, proud parent, inventor, test pilot, a kind, funny, original man. And the Canadian Space Agency said he'll be remembered for his humor, dedication, and originality. Trigvison died on Monday. He was 76 years old. Well, staying in space... If you could have a conversation with an alien, what would you say? Well, that's exactly what scientists have been looking into. They've come up with this special message to send to space, which they hope will one day reach something, someone, aliens. The binary coded message, which has been named the beacon in the galaxy, has information about life on Earth, the solar system, what humans look like, the rules of chess, believe it or not. It also invites any extraterrestrial beings who come across it to respond. Now, this isn't the first time this has been done. It was done back in 1974 in a significantly less complex way, I understand. But to tell us all about it, I'm joined by Kristen Fay, uh, a science systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is always fascinating um, when these things are done. How did the idea to create a new message come about? Yeah, so just to get started here, um, as a little bit of a disclaimer, I'm not speaking on behalf of NASA as an agency, and all of my viewpoints right. are my own. But this is obviously an exciting um, conversation that lots of different people are interested in. So um, our message and our motivation for this is, firstly, is that it's been nearly 50 years since that first message from Arecibo um, was broadcasted. And since then, the field of exoplanets has just exponentially increased. Um, we're at nearly 5,000 confirmed exoplanets, and we're expecting about another 5,000 more in the coming years. So um, certainly now is the time to start thinking about uh, our place in the galaxy and potential life on other planets. So... If you could describe to me what the message is, because I was, I, you know, obviously thinking back to 74, you're th I was thinking, you know, bearing an eight-track cassette or something. I mean, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. But tell me a bit about the message uh, and how it's composed and what it contains. Yeah, so just to compare to the 1974 message and give some background, um, they more or less wanted to provide a technological demonstration of the radio telescope. Um, so that was their first... <laughs> initial intention. Their message was smaller, more re low resolution, um, whereas ours 
contains a lot more information. So we provide uh, data such as where we're located in the galaxy, where Earth is located in the solar system, building blocks of DNA, what we think our understanding of physics is, and even images such as man and woman. That's, I mean, how was that decided? I mean, or, or how is it, should I really ask, what language is it in? So it's in binary, um, which we believe, I mean, it's hard to kind of assume what language aliens would speak, right? Um, Indeed. But assuming that they have some sort of mathematical um, capability, we believe that binary would be the best way to send this message via radio telescope. Um, And what we decided to send in the message was based on, first of all, that Arecibo message, but also conversations within our team and the astrophysical community. Um, What we're broadcasting is very straightforward, scientific. Um, It's really just a, a hello, this is who we are. It's a fascinating idea, obviously. Um, I understand that what contained within it, within it, at least, are the rules to the game of chess. Is that right? So this is something we've talked about. So not in the initial message, ah. but we have thought about, you know, in Carl Sagan's golden disc, he had music and language. And um, if we decided that we wanted to send follow-up information to extraterrestrial intelligence yeah we could provide you know game of chess or um other maybe recreational activities that humans (laughs) partake in that's uh it's interesting i mean i suppose you could at this point you could send them wordle maybe or but no but chess is fantastic (laughs) (laughs) um how will this be sent? I know you're not sending yourselves but similar to how it was done the first time uh this is going to be transmitted by somebody else yeah, so this is a meant to be an interstellar radio message. So long wave radio frequencies uh, penetrate interstellar dust. So that's why we think it's a appropriate um, medium to do it via radio telescopes. And how and how is that? How does that work precisely? If you can forgive the uh, the ignorance. So one of the challenges is that since Arecibo was decommissioned or was, um, you know, (laughs) unfortunately broken during one of the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, we don't necessarily have the capability to send it out on our current radio telescopes. So this work is meant to kind of get ahead of the game. So then when we do have these larger new radio telescopes, um, they're working on them in the United States and China. Uh, we will already be ready to have this message to send out to them. Um, there is a warning in the past, was there not? From, from I mean, this has come up. These are there's a lot of there's a lot of bit a lot's been written already about this project about this idea, and it, a lot of the articles go back to this warning that Stephen Hawking brought up about not contacting or not reaching <laughs> out this way. Um, how was that taken into consideration, and what what do you make of that? Yeah, there's a lot of public opinion on this. Um, and that's yeah. part of our intention, too, is to really start this discussion on if we should be sending this, but also what we should be including. Um, so I can provide my personal <laughs> opinion. Sure, sure. Which is, yeah. 
as much as I respect Stephen Hawking, obviously he's an icon. Um, I think that if there were an extraterrestrial intelligence that is able to reach Earth, even if they are nefarious, this message is in no way uh, uh, provoking them in any way. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> so yeah. they wouldn't really have reason for to you know annihilate mankind. Um, the other thing is the time scale is so long. So even if we send it out now, it might not be until hundreds or thousands of years later that anyone would even be able to receive it or respond to it. So it's certainly not a, uh, you know, texting back and forth kind of situation <laughs> here. Um, yeah, uh, indeed. Yes, yes. It wouldn't be one of those situations where you're expecting an immediate response. I'm speaking with Kristen Fay, a space system science systems engineer at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He was not here speaking on behalf of NASA, but on behalf of her own uh, curiosity, or at least her own expertise in in this subject that we are discussing, which is the idea of sending a message, a binary coded message called the beacon in the galaxy, which has information about all sorts of things, essentially a what's what about life on Earth, the solar system, what humans look like. And it invites any being out there who may come across it uh, to respond. And and I, w- I was wondering if you've looked into what the, I mean, no one's responded to the 1974 one, I gather, or <laughs> obviously, um, how that factored into your calculations. Because I understand from just from reading through the different articles that have been written about this, and there have been a lot of articles, by the way, congratulations, um, that this one was sort of tailor-made to be a bit more effective than the last one, at least in reaching further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something that we also built upon is our previous paper that we published. And in that work, we used a model to simulate where exactly in the Milky Way we think extraterrestrial intelligence would be most prevalent. So we found kind of the coordinates that we should be sending this to, which is about 13,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. Um, so that's also an improvement from the 19. 19- 74 version as well. So how, how long does it take to send said message? In terms of the time frame when we plan on sending it, um, there is no exact time frame from our end, but to receive it, it really depends on where in the galaxy <laughs> life would be. Um, obviously, the distances are incomprehensible, really, <laughs> to humans. Yeah. So. Um, as we talked about before, the time frame is really something that needs to be accounted for when we think about even receiving a message back. So, Kristen, I mean, this is, of course, the stuff of of many, many a book and more than many, many a movie. Uh, but how does the discussion about life elsewhere take place in an environment as um, sophisticated as yours, for instance? Yeah, that's a good question, because it can feel very sci-fi, right? Um, yeah. So when we're talking about, you know, the Fermi paradox and, you know, I'm even hesitant to say alien, but, you know, we say extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, I think the field in general is a little bit more open to having these discussions, again, because we've started to find more exoplanets. And I think the public as well is starting to, you know, not necessarily see this type of work as being totally strange and out there, but a little bit more accepting. So that's why we're able to um, actually put some more research into this. And I guess in that sense, it really does separate itself from what we think of, you know, you know, obviously researching this day or looking into today, I was thinking about, you know, 
aliens or ET or, you know, all the things that people who don't study this think about. Uh -huh. um, but, but within those circumstances, I guess this is a conversation we, we should be having because you're right, as we double the number of exoplanets that we know exist, uh, our ability to reach further and further into out there uh, makes this more and more likely, I would think. And that's just... Yeah, in uh, terms of the likelihood, even, you know, major figures in history have really predicted this, like Frank Drake and Carl Sagan were the original um, pioneers of the first message. Um, and clearly, Stephen Hawking was thinking about this when he was alive. So, yeah, we do think life could be quite prevalent. Um, again, leading back to that Fermi paradox, though, where is everybody? <laughs> There's that's that is the eternal question, is it not? Um, and, and this must be exciting for you too, just as an individual, um, to be working. Oh, with totally. This. Yeah, I'm so honored to even work on something that you know, it's like standing on the shoulder of giants, <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, and yeah, we hope to just start this as a discussion for the international community everyone globally really should have input on if we're sending a message as earth as a species of humans um you know we want to make sure that everyone has agreed upon this so but yeah personally i'm thrilled to work on this type of work and has that been something have you looked back a lot at the 1974 experiment i remember when that when that telescope collapsed obviously and it came up again that this message had been sent uh, how much inspiration did you derive from that original attempt? Oh, yeah. I mean, inspiration from that and also even the golden disc that right. Carl Sagan also worked on. Um, at JPL, we have um, in our auditorium like a replica copy. So I remember really? when I first started, I would, you know, go over there and look at it. And yeah, it's just so fun being surrounded by all this and getting to work on, you know, extraterrestrial research. Yeah, the Jet Propulsion Library. That, that I didn't realize you had. A, you, of course, you have an acronym for it, the JPL. That's great, um, Kristen Fay. Thank you so much for your time. And and so we don't know exactly. This is still in the in the conceptual stage, right? We don't know exactly when this will be transmitted, so to speak. Correct. Yes, we hmm. we publish this open source, um, and again, we just want to open up that discussion and kind of you know provide the media with as much information as possible to hopefully have everyone on the same page for broadcasting to potential life. Kristen Fay, it is a fascinating project. Best of luck. Um, it is, I mean, a lot of it's, you know, a lot of it is just fantastic kind of stuff. It's really exciting to hear about and uh, good luck. We look forward to watching this progress. Thank you so much. We're excited as well on, on the team.